0: this week's Adam Schefter podcast, we're joined by the former NFL veteran quarterback, Dan Orlovsky, as he takes us through all the stops in his NFL career and what stands out about them. And we'll get your questions in another round of Ask Adam Questions. But first, the veteran NFL quarterback, Dan Orlovsky. 12 seasons? Mm -hmm. 12 seasons. Amazing. Now, at ESPN, an analyst for... And if alive, get up wherever they need you. Right, Dan? Dan Orlovsky, the former veteran quarterback for the Lions, Texans, Colts, Buccaneers, Lions, Rams. Am I forgetting anybody, Dan? No, that's all the cities we hit.
1: That's That's all all the, the, the organizations I was able to fool, man.
0: When you recite that litany of teams there, what stands out in your mind? Like, of all those places that you went through?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that stands out was, was I'm very proud of it, obviously, you know, to play for that many organizations more often than not. Like, people hear it and they think, like, oh, you must not have been good or something, you know, but then there's value in that. Like, obviously, those places found value in, in what I was able to bring and whatnot. And a lot of cool cities, too. Like, Detroit gets a bad rap. Man, living in Michigan, I loved Michigan. Um, you know, Houston, the food. Uh, Indy, the people. Uh, Tampa, the beach. Back to, back to Detroit, uh, again, for some cool experiences. And then L.A. Um, is L.A. Everyone, everyone knows how amazing L.A. is. So a lot of some cool pieces. Twelve seasons. And you just rattled off some of the things you like about those cities. Give me a person oh. that made an impact
0: on you in each of those cities. All right. I'm glad places. you asked these yeah. cities. You know, and I didn't expect to be going here. i got to say this. But let's start with the first place, Detroit, from 2005 to 2008.
1: Yeah. I say First m- stop in Detroit. Uh, Mike Furry. Mike Furry, who's now the wide receivers coach for the Chicago Bears. You know, Mike Furry was a guy that not many people knew, whatever. And I was young. And I was, listen, so many people. But he was a guy that I just watched. You know, he never said much. He was not a outspoken guy, but he worked and worked and worked. But also, like, I watched him be a dad and a husband. And that was something that, I like, I really wanted in my life. And I just watched him and watched the way he carried himself. And he went about his business and uh, you know respected people and handled things the right way and especially when it came to like the unique aspect you know the nfl is is it's there's politics and all that stuff and timing and money just to watch the way he carried himself was something that like i just gravitated for towards so my first run again so many people but he he's one that stands out houston 2009 2010 matt schaub uh, Matt Schaub, who, it's funny, Matt Schaub, when I was coming out of h- uh, high school, Shefty, was my host on a visit at UVA. So I'd kind of known him. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, uh, but I went, I went down there and he's still a, a very good friend of mine. And, and, uh, just, you know, there was so, the unique situation of being a quarterback and how important his role was as the quarterback of the Houston Texans. That so many jobs were at stake and, and how, you know, every, throw that he threw in practice mattered to him and that was something that was uh you know really like impactful for me and my growth i was still relatively young as a quarterback but uh, like i said still a very good friend of mine still playing somehow man he's like in his 98th season in the nfl um but uh he huge impact on me indianapolis 2011 jeff saturday man our very own Real jeff well, saturday well here's why we we were a bad football team that's when peyton had his neck and we were a bad football team and whatnot, and that was a team that for a decade was accustomed to success. Super Bowls, AFC right. titles, all wins. that stuff. We were bad, and we beat. Uh, Jeff Saturday never blinked. Jeff Saturday never wavered. He never changed. He never pointed fingers. He kept being a leader and an encourager and uh, really kind of kept us together along with Coach Caldwell. But we beat in or Tennessee for our first win of the year, I want to say like week 13 or week 14, and Saturday – the emotion that he had in the locker room, it, it, it felt like we won the AFC. I'm not joking. Like he used the words. They still stick to me. He goes, I've been on around so many great players and so many great teams. I've never been more proud to be a b- part of a team wow. than this one because we were, we were in a really bad situation. And, uh, but he was the glue, uh, just as like integrity wise that kept us together. Tampa Bay 2012 and 13. Uh, you know, I'd probably say Vincent Jackson. You know, Vincent was a guy that, Came over from the Chargers and got paid, right? And you, so often in the NFL, we see guys, especially like skill positions, they get paid and then they shut it down in a way. You know, they don't—they're not the player or match the expectation. Vincent was the opposite. It was like he got paid and wanted more. He wanted to go prove that he was worth that money. So, just the the integrity of the work ethic, man. Uh, I, I loved out of him. Great player, second
0: round draft pick, University of Northern
1: Colorado. Yeah. He's having a great impact in the community down there as well now. He's a big, yeah, have a lot of businesses and whatnot, and it does a lot for the people of Tampa. Really? And you're still in touch with them? Yeah. Really good How about that? Detroit. Back in Detroit, Dan, 2014 to
0: 2016.
1: Yeah, there's a trend here. Uh, Matthew Stafford. You know, I, I went there not knowing Matthew, and I knew of him and kind of the reputation that he had, you know, for I guess some outsiders had pegged him with, with the backwards hat and does he really care? And then quickly those things got kind of snuffed out because he is one of the most, and he won't appreciate me saying this because he doesn't want people to know, but like one of the most genuine, caring, down-to-earth people you'll ever come around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I tell, he has this great ability to understand that he's the guy. He's the the quarterback of the Detroit Lions. He's one of the top 10 people in the world at it. he's the CEO of the billion-dollar company. And also makes everyone feel like they're a guy. Like he's a guy, just a guy. You know, he has that, that great ability to be, the best, and also just fit in. And he makes everybody else around him comfortable like that. And so, but very good friend of mine, uh, think the world of him, but just, you know, how committed he is, how tough he is, how much it matters to him, to the outside, don't get to see it, but he is uh, at the very top of the list.
0: And the last stop would be the Los Angeles Rams in 2017. And if my math is correct, would it be that Sean McVay basically rang you out of the
1: league? Yeah, right? I have a great story of that. Uh, you know, Sean called me that spring, and I had known Sean a little bit, but Matt LaFleur and Greg Olson were there, some coaches, whatnot, that are, you know, LaFleur now the head coach of the Packers, and, and Greg Olson, the offensive coordinator of the Raiders. I had passed with those guys. Sean called me, hey, our quarterback room is was, was Jared Goff and Sean Mannion. Sean McVay would be my answer, by the way. My quarterback room is Sh- Jared Goff, Sean Mannion, super young. I need I need a veteran Great, Sean. What's your guy's plan? He's like, we're keeping a third quarterback. And what we're going to do is we're going to cut you before, you know, cut you at the end of training camp, cut you before week one so we could have the roster flexibility, but you'll be here. You're not going to do anything in training camp. That happens. Training camp happens. I went 16 days in training camp without taking a single rep. But that's what they had told me. Sean was very upfront and honest with me. Like, hey, you're not going to do anything. I need you to basically coach. Cool. End of camp comes. Fourth preseason comes. Game and comes and I play and I don't play well, whatever. And cut day comes. I'm in Sean's office for like an hour with less need. He, you know, hey, this is, we're going to, ha- we're going to do this. You know, i not sitting here telling you a thousand percent. I'm bringing you back week two, but I'm bringing, we're, we're, that's the plan. We're going forward with the plan, whatever. Dead honest with me, very honest with me. They cut me. Wednesday comes and he calls me. He's like, hey, we're going to go in a different direction. We got a chance to get a young guy. At the moment, I was like, what? You know, you don't treat a veteran like this. And then, After the emotion wore off from it, whatnot, I looked back and I was like, Sean McVay was as honest of an NFL person as I've ever been around. Because he told me, like, this is the plan, but he always left the but there. And so uh, Sean McVay, just for his brilliance. But people, I say this, people, yes, he's a brilliant X's and O's guy. He's a better leader. He is a better people person and leader than he is that. The story I've always told
0: with Sean McVay is I remember speaking to him two years ago. They were playing the final regular season game, and he made an announcement that Monday that we're not going to play Jared Goff, we're not going to play Todd Gurley, we're not going to play much people. And there were a bunch of people who reached out to me that week and said, hey, that's disrespecting the game. Mm -hmm. It's not how you handle it. If you're not going to play the guys, don't tell them, and don't say anything until right before the game so it doesn't affect the week of practice. And I remember speaking to Sean that Friday, Uh and I said, hey, I just want to pass along what a couple of people, respected people, said just want you to be aware of it. And whereas most people I think would have said, man, screw him, screw that guy. Right. He was like, that's great. I really appreciate bringing that to my attention. Thank you for making me think about this. And yeah. I'm thinking to myself, that's incredible yeah. that he could be so open minded, so welcoming mm-hmm. of criticism, embrace it, and yeah. try to grow from it.
1: Well, it's funny you, you kind of use the word like open-minded or embracing because I mentioned that I was in his office with less that cut day for an hour. That's rare. I mean, I've been cut two or three times in my career and they were like seven minute conversations and he was asking, what can we do better? Dan, what can I do better? You've you've been in install meetings, like how can I teach better? How, how, how can I lead groups better? Uh, what do you think we need to do just from a, a week by a week standpoint? How can we do things better? And I was sitting there like... A coach has never asked me this and I appreciated it because he thought enough of me to ask in that way. But the openness to like, it's the, it's the saying like it's the process or you're never finished product or whatnot. Like he's always trying to challenge himself to be, find a way, a little way to get better.
0: So did it surprise you at all? The success that he's had early on in his career? And, and I will say this, I think he's going to be one of the great all time coaches in league history.
1: Not at, not at all. Another story. We were in the first meeting ever that I was a part of with them. And, uh, you know, usually like when you go through like the start of a training camp meeting, coaches will spend two or three hours like logistics, right? Hey, this person is this person. This is who we're going to be as an organization, all that stuff. And I sat in the front row, empty seat to my right, then Jared Goff. And so we get through those first two or three hours of meetings And then Sean starts to talk football. And three minutes in, 180 seconds into the meeting, I leaned over to Jared Goff, who I'd known for 24 hours. I said, dude, you have no idea how lucky you are. You're going to be just fine because this guy's brilliant. The way Sean was talking football and X's and O's on both sides of the football, both not talking like, hey, this, this is cover three, but going down into the Deep levels where if I was a person who never played football before, I would have understood exactly what he was saying. The way he was able to articulate and communicate that stuff, I knew Jared Goff was going to be fine. Because he was in such a a unique once-in-a-lifetime situation with that coach, I wasn't surprised by his success at all.
0: You also were there at a time where basically he's just starting out. And correct if I'm wrong, Matt LaFleur was the offensive coordinator. Yep, Zach Taylor was the quarterback's yeah. coach. And Greg Olson was on the staff. He's now the offensive coordinator with John Gruden. Did you have any idea at that time that you were looking at a room full of coaches who would go on to become head coaches that quickly with LaFleur winding up as the Packers head coach and Zach Taylor winding up as the Bengals head coach and Greg Olson winding up as the Raiders offensive coordinator? And who else? Who knows who's going to come out of that room and become a head coach?
1: I, I mean, I'd be lying sitting here saying like, I, I thought that then as I'm removed from it now, I'm not surprised at all. And one, I get it with the NFL. Like, I understand it and I, I applaud those organizations because it's, it's the why not. Like, why not try something maybe a little bit different? We've seen this work. We've seen this trend in a way. Make sure, or can we strike, you know, can we strike the same match? Uh, I've known Matt LaFleur for 10 plus years. He was actually like a quality control guy down with us in Houston when I had mentioned my time down there. And I will say this about Matt Lafleur: very intelligent, hard worker, and he's like a no stone unturned guy. Almost in like annoying way, where you're like, "Dude, come on, give me five seconds." But he's like, w- w- "How can we? How can we do more? Do better? Do this? Can we do this better?" So I'm excited to see him in Green Bay and and kind of interact with with Aaron. I didn't have a ton of time with Zach Taylor. I only had a season with Zach, or you know, less than a season with Zach. But you could tell, I remember when Zach was kind of like an interim offensive coordinator with the Dolphins, because um, mm-hmm. I had known about his playing career, just hearing him like shaking his hand before a game and kind of talking about football in a way, you'd be like, all right, that guy gets it. He understands football. And it, I, I've exchanged some texts with him over the past couple months. Um, I'm excited for him down there, but very bright. And those guys have learned under, they've, they've been around, Sean. That's a big deal. So we just went
0: off on a tangent about your career, the places you've been, the people you know, and I was not expecting to do that. Where I wanted to start with you, but where we will start now is with the draft having wrapped up last month and with all these quarterbacks finding new homes, Kyler Murray in Arizona, Daniel Jones with the New York Giants, Drew Locke with the Denver Broncos. Haskins
1: to Washington. Wayne
0: Haskins with the Washington Redskins. Which quarterback is in the best position to succeed short
1: and long term. Yeah, I mean, surprisingly I would probably say Daniel Jones. And I really believed that Dan, the New York situation is a healthy one. As much chaos as has gone down in our eyes uh, in that organization, like you get a chance to learn from a Hall of Famer. And I've said the greatest impact that they're going to have is the non-football stuff. That, that, that Daniel Jones is going to learn from Eli is the non-football stuff because we got to be honest about the New York market is a is is a brutal market. Whether things are good or bad, because when it's good, the expectations just continue to rise, which are already high. And when they're bad, it's like watch out. And so Eli, you can make the argument handled it better than any New York sport sports start maybe ever. Just the way he's handled it all. And so for Daniel Jones to one uh, had that opportunity to learn all those things behind Eli, but two also like. There's zero pressure to play. They almost don't want him to play the way they're talking about it. Now, the expectation for him is when he does play, it's he's got to go be great. You know, that's been my thing is like, you drafted him not to be good, to be great. But just the opportunity to sit back and breathe is a huge deal for a rookie quarterback. You used the word chaos yeah.
0: surrounding the selection. What has most struck you about this chaos surrounding
1: the selection? Well, when you look at the draft and you look at the early parts of the draft, there's always Parts to a player's game that you could point to and justify it, whether you thought it was production or a projection based pick like you could point to Kyler Murray and be like, you no one you can't find you can't coach his athleticism. You just can't. You go back to last year, Lamar Jackson. You can't coach the speed. Josh Allen. You can't coach the arm. There's stuff there. There's a trait there that you go. I can justify this pick because of that there's with Daniel Jones there's nothing that stands out whether production there was never that monster production like Dwayne haskins had 50 touchdowns you go man this guy threw for 50 touchdowns in one season well the production is greatest season I believe is 22 touchdowns so there, there's nothing there you could jump to and be like that's the sixth pick and then there's no physical trait there right there's he he's there's no massive arm there's no uncate like Baker Mayfield had obnoxiously uncanny accuracy his accuracy is what I call NFL accuracy where I could throw it in a six inch by six inch box Danny Jones doesn't have that he doesn't have the big arm he doesn't have the massive speed so there was nothing like physical trait that made you go that's the justification for the sixth pick so that's kind of the chaos going you know uh, you took a guy that in college was good he was a good solid player and now when you take him at six, instead of like a 17 or 27 or wherever, or second rounder, you've taken him from good, and now you expect him to be great because of that sixth pick. You know what's amazing to me is that if there were
0: a quarterback taken in the first round by the Pittsburgh Steelers with Ben Roethlisberger, or the Chargers with Phillip Rivers, um, you would hear so much more conversation about how it impacts that guy. There's been so little conversation mm-hmm. about how – Am I imagining that no. how it will impact the It's all about Daniel Jones and whether he's worth the sixth overall pick and yeah. not having any of those outstanding traits. And yet at the same time, I'll tell you, I think one of the most overlooked aspects of all this is that there were just as many teams that had Daniel Jones ranked ahead of Dwayne Haskins as there were teams that had Dwayne Haskins
1: ranked ahead of Daniel Jones. Well, one of the unique things like in my role or so many of guys like that who just sit back is we just watch tape. We can only go off of tape, and when you hear Gettleman or Pat Shermer talk, one of the things or probably the thing that they really loved or fell in love with was all the other stuff, all the leadership, all the can you handle this stuff. I always say that for a quarterback, what you do without the ball is more important than what you do with the ball. I believe Matt Hasselback says that as well. And so that's one of the things that we don't necessarily get the opportunity to spend time with the guy or learn from the guy is like, how, what are you as a leader? How are you is that stuff? Cause that's more impactful or as, as important as the physical traits. And so, uh, that, that's probably where those teams get to spend time with those guys. They get to spend time with David Cutcliffe, his coach, his teammates, and really get an opportunity to fall in love with the, the, the person and then the player. See,
0: the, the Giants have made this pick before.
1: It was Phil Sims in 1979. Right. What's that? Well, he Mo- was the, Moorhead? he was the
0: seventh overall pick coming out of Moorhead State, where in his senior year, Dan, he threw six touchdown passes and 11 interceptions. And he went 7th overall in 1979. And the New York fans at the time, I remember sure. because I was 12 years old. And I probably was in 6th or 7th grade. And I remember my giant friends at elementary school or junior high school, wherever I was, going nuts over the fact that the Giants just took this quarterback. By the way, the draft back then was on a Tuesday because I remember getting the news in a classroom calling something called Sports Phone to get the updates. But anyway, Phil Sims, Moorhead State, 7th overall pick. Six touchdowns, 11 interceptions his senior year. And in a way, this is what that pick is like. It's yeah. Daniel Jones from Duke yeah. that nobody expected with not great stats going in a spot that very few people expected him to go.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the, one of the things that I said was we just don't have a—I mean, this is 40 years ago, and Sims is a great correlation, but like we just don't have a great example— of a quarterback that was just good in college football. Not really good. Not wow, that guy was great, but Phil just Sims might not have even been that. Right, exactly. But just kind of good in college and then went on and was taken early and became great. Now there's been some guys that were good in college that were taken in the 3rd or 4th round or undrafted and then they became great pros after a couple of years but the expectations weren't that you know the expectations weren't for them to be great we just don't have a a history of a guy that was just a good player in college quarterback wise taken to be great and then became great and so phil sims would be like the one kind of outlier example there's no other examples that we could think i've of. had a lot of people because i put this on social media i've had a lot of people like some people throw out like russell wilson and i want to be like dude russell wilson so was a third round pick and was great in college Breeze, great in college. Brady, but Brady was the sixth-round pick. There's not... An example. Certainly, Brady was really good in college. Yeah, that's another thing too. People sleep on like Brady was really good at Michigan. Like there was Go some watch off the, the bowl field game stuff. against
0: Alabama.
1: Exactly his final game, yeah. and, you, and
0: you say, why were people waiting to take this guy? Yeah. at the 199th spot. If exactly, you the guy? but
1: there's not an example really. Phil Sims is certainly the outlier. There might be another one or two. I would have to remember like my social media. How about my, Kurt Warner? But there was no again, expectations. Yeah, there was no where the guy was just good. Taken early and became great. We've had guys that were just good, like EJ Manuel. Was a good college player, taken to be great and never was. Jake Locker, Christian Ponder, like those guys were good, but taken at that spot to be expected to be great, and they never became great. And so that we just don't have examples of it. Where Dak Prescott. Third round pick or fourth round pick, you know. Again, fourth round pick though, fourth. But that there is a. I I would argue that there is a massive difference between the sixth and seventeenth pick expectations wise. Like you're taking, if you're taking sixth, you're taken to be great with the expectation to be great. Well, you can't be twenty two and nine. You can't. And that's the issue. Would it be better for Daniel Jones had the Giants
0: gone Josh Allen at six, mm-hmm. Ed Oliver at six? and then come back around
1: and take in Daniel Jones at 17 would that have made life easier i honestly believe that i honestly believe that because especially with the pay scale where it is nowadays and you and and you don't kind of have to commit all that money i've said that this was more about the giants than it was daniel jones i did a duke game i could i think the kid's really tough i think the kid's he's like a an alex smith to me you know he's going to be really good within 12 or 15 yards but once you get past that that's when the question marks come but I do believe that if he was taken at the 17th pick, and I kind of talk out both sides of my mouth, it'd be different. But I'm also the guy that applauds the Giants to go, listen, if that's the guy you wanted, don't wait till 17. Because I've always said, like, what's it matter if the guy was a first or second round pick? Like, I've always said that, like, you you're picking him to go be really good for you. But with the sixth pick, again, like I said this about Baker last year. you're not expected to be really good at one. You're expected to change the franchise at one, and he did.
0: You know, I remember going around talking to a bunch of teams that needed quarterbacks, looking at the quarterbacks, so teams not even in the quarterback market that are looking at them. I remember the comment that one person said to me about Daniel Jones. They said that he's a third-round talent who's going to go in the first round, who's going to be a good quarterback, but never going to be a great quarterback. Sure. That he has solid skills, but nothing that wows you. Now – in this league, as this person pointed out, if we go back last year, I think seven of the ten highest-paid quarterbacks didn't make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And the other ones did. So they were saying about Daniel Jones, well, if you surround him with enough talent and have a good enough defense, then maybe you could go to the playoffs and have a winning franchise with the guy. But that that just sounds like an awful lot to attach to a Sixth overall pick. Again, not 17. Right. Not 30 where they got DeAndre Baker. Right. But six.
1: Yeah. And that again, it, like, like in any aspect of our life, expectations set yeah. everything. And so now he's going to be expected to be, but it's such a unique situation, Shefty, because like, again, Eli. Like I'm not on the, I'm not in the camp that think Eli stinks right now. Mm-hmm. I believe that Eli can still play good functional football. Um, but it's, it's, Out of those guys that did not make the playoffs and all that, like we're in the craze right now where everyone's like, let's just keep your quarterback cheap and pay everybody else and whatnot. But eventually you just create a cycle. Like let's say they build the roster and Daniel Jones doesn't play for two years and then he plays and is a good quarterback. Well, two years after that, you're going to have to make a decision. Do you pay Jan- Daniel Jones and not pay everybody else? Like, you know, so you create this vicious cycle where if he's good, let's say he becomes good, the Giants are going to have in a situation where like, okay, well, what do we do with him now type thing? But, um, you know, it, it's, it, that's the thing. There, it's going to be hard for Daniel Jones to match up to what the, the fan base, the organization, the team, the teammates, like, the teammates are looking around going Daniel you were the sixth pick you're supposed to be the guy you know and so that's going to be all those things that are going to be laid upon them
0: and I noticed on social media this weekend right away the giants social media account had Daniel Jones dropping dimes there was a couple
1: of short passes <laughs> yeah I saw some of those mentions and, and sure. I thought
0: to myself the team has a very vested interest in making sure that this guy is introduced properly yeah. handled properly and basically given the respect that they wanted to have so that everybody believes in him and he has a chance, a better chance, to succeed. And that's part
1: of it. And it's interesting because I heard Pat Shermer say, talking about him, and Pat Shermer was like, and I don't know Coach Shermer, but he was like, well, time will tell. And my response to that was like, it's not only time, it's you as well. Like, you're the coach. Your handling of him and Gettleman's... A support of him and what, what you guys put around him is as equally as important as what he does with it, you know? And so mm-hmm. I often say, I've said this for years, so many quarterbacks are ruined than they are made in the NFL because there's not a lot of teams and coaches that truly know how to coach them and develop them. Part of it is too, the the, the two quarterback rule. We don't have third quarter. When I came in the NFL, I sat for two years and did nothing on game days but dress, I didn't have to worry about learning a game plan and also having to win a game type thing. So and, and that's a whole other different thing, but it it'll be interesting to see how they handle him moving forward, how they handle Eli moving forward. But the the, the, the presentation of him to yeah. their fans is, is massive.
0: All right, before we let you go, I gotta ask you about October two thousand eight. Everybody does, right?
1: You know what that is? I see your eyes wandering. <laughs> There was 11 months in 2008 that year, I believe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was the game in which you were playing the Minnesota Vikings. And early in the first quarter, you lined up in the shotgun formation and inadvertently ran out of the back of your own end zone for a safety and what turned out to be the margin victory. Dan Olofsky, five yards deep in his own end zone, looking at a third down and 10. Got the football. Roy Light oh, ran out of bounds.
2: He ran out of the end zone at the safety. Dan's got to know that. Get rid of the ball.
1: Dan, yeah. So, wh- what were you thinking <laughs> on the play? So, a couple things. One, I the initial part, first start. Imagine like first start, first NFL start, first NFL start, second NFL drive. And lining up, getting pinned deep, and then Kevin Williams and Pat Williams were the D tackles, and me going like, okay, this should be cool. I I played at UConn. Um, But it was third down, and we called a shotgun play, and it was a one-man route. It was Calvin Johnson only, like, hey, we're throwing this ball to Calvin. And the play came in, we lined up, and it was a terrible defense for it. So I called timeout, and I went to the sideline, and I was like, hey, it's like third and ten or something here, or third and – like, can we – call something different where maybe there's another option, another route, whatnot. And they were like, no, keep with the call, but they put me under center. And so, um, Jared Allen splits a double, beats a double block. And it's like, I look back on it now and I'm like, gosh, that is, I laughed at the sideline, but it's just a funny play. But I, I, I remove myself from it. And I go like, I've never, I was never in that situation before. Like you always hear coaches talk about punters. Hey, when you're backed up, you practice it. Like you can't take a step back. I had never, Hey, when you're under center or you're in the shotgun or whatnot and we're backed up like you can't you can't go back because the natural reaction for a quarterback with pressure is we either step up if it comes outside or we move horizontally yeah. with some depth to get away from it and so i had never even thought about it but um it's it's an infamous play now i, I get reminded of it on social media uh, daily by somebody <laughs> with it's a gif now uh but i remember getting to the sideline and like having this look on my face of like, I don't know what to say or do and Roy Williams and Calvin Johnson just looked at me and for like two seconds stared and then burst out laughing. And they're like, You're an idiot. And I was like, Valid, valid. So How much do you get reminded of it on a daily basis or a weekly basis or whatever? Daily. Daily because of the beauty of social media. Somebody's some if I say something that somebody doesn't like, somebody's natural response is to go search that GIF and send it. Sometimes it's just sent with that. Sometimes there's some some uh profane text attached to it, but uh, uh, I get it. I look back now and I'm like, oh my gosh, that is a really, really, really bad play. And then my only saving grace is the very next week, we were down in uh, Houston playing the Texans. Same situation, but I believe it was the three-yard line. (laughs) And we called a go route to Calvin. He was touchdown yeah. pass
0: to Calvin Johnson, yeah. I right? I mean,
1: Calvin ran by the guy by like 12 yards, but, uh, that's why only saving grace is like that happened the very next week. Yeah, but, but
0: nobody remembers that that happened the yeah, next week. Exactly. <laughs> I don't
1: get that gift sent to me. Yeah, why do you put that gift up to that gift when they put it up? Because I, I'm so, I'm so like, uh, you know, like I, I want to, honestly, sometimes I find it funny. Like sometimes when someone sends it to me, I'll like respond back like, well played. You know, like I, I get it. It's a, it's a funny play. Um, and then like, again, like I, I think I played like eight or nine years after that. So it's not the, I've, it's funny. It's sports in the moment. It's stunk. And I'm sure lions fans, I've apologized to you guys. Like in those moments, like we lost, we were 0 16, the great, we were, we lost that game 12, <laughs> 10, we were 0 16. <laughs> like there's a lot of layers to that play that make it even oh. worse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, uh, uh, it, it is what it is, man. It's fun. It's funny to me. Well, good for you that you can maintain yeah. such a good attitude about it, yeah. man. Yeah, exactly. And thank fun. you
0: for running us through your career, going on a walk down memory lane and appreciate all the insight today. Thanks very much for the time, Dan. Thank you, man. The call you heard there comes courtesy of WXYT. Ask Adam. Ask Adam. ask
2: Adam. ask Adam. Ask Adam. Ask Adam. We should ask Adam.
0: And we're glad you did. Another week of Ask Adam questions, which we've had tabled since the NFL draft. So now that the draft has passed, and now that we're into the middle of May, time to bring back another round of Ask Adam questions, and time to bring back my friend, my producer, the great Josh Macri. Josh.
2: Adam, it's been too long, so some good voicemails have built up. The first one comes to us from the great state of Indiana. Give a listen. Hey, Adam. This is Mateo. So I have a question about the Colts linebacking core. So Anthony Walker took in that role along next to Darius Leonard this year, and I just wanted to know, do you still see Anthony Walker contributing on this team and maybe adding on top more, or do you see him possibly getting replaced by some of the draft picks that the Colts use, and they use a lot of linebacking picks.
0: Well, great question, Mateo, and I think you're a smart guy. I think you're on to something there. If you take a look at the Indianapolis draft, they went ahead in the third round, 89th overall pick, and took Bobby Okareki, the linebacker from Stanford, to use another pick later on in the fifth round, 164th overall selection on EJ Speed from Tarleton State. Now, again, a couple of linebackers there. That tells you something that they're looking. Look, Anthony Walker's a good player, uh, but they are on the lookout for more help at that position right now. Walker's still listed as the starter. We'll see how it shakes out during training camp. Let's we'll stay on the
2: defensive side of the ball, Adam, but head a little further west, up to the Pacific Northwest, as a matter of fact, for this question about Ziggy Ansah. What's good, Adam? It's John from Eugene. So my question is about Ezekiel Ansah signing. Was it not odd that he only signed a one-year deal? Do you think this means that it's a prove-it year for Ziggy and then the Seahawks would be the leading candidate to sign him to a long-term extension, depending on how his season goes? Or is it more of an Adama Kassou signing for the Rams where they're trying to make a run at the Super Bowl? The Seahawks are definitely a playoff-caliber football team, and Russell has the ability to take them to a Super Bowl. But just looking for some more clarity on the thought process behind this very late signing by the Seahawks. Thanks, Adam.
0: Yeah, well, first of all, John, I would say this to you, that Ziggy Ansah wasn't fully healthy and and probably still isn't healthy. Number 2, the Seahawks traded away Frank Clark before the draft, and I think part of the reasoning behind trading Frank Clark was freeing up the 17 plus million dollars against their cap. And then notice after they traded Frank Clark, what do they do? They go out and use the first round pick, 29th overall selection on TCU defensive end LJ Collier, and then they go out and sign Ziggy Ansah with a one-year deal. Ansa was signed to a one-year deal, frankly, because he wanted to be able to hit the market, prove that he's healthy this year, help a team out, and then land the type of big money deal that he was not able to get this offseason, at least the kind of lengthy big money deal that he was hoping to get this offseason. So it's almost like Seattle and Ansa get to date this year, see how they like each other, see if it works out. And if it works out, they could always consummate the marriage and enter into a long-term agreement. If not... He goes on, and then Seattle has a year of seasoned LJ Collier first-round draft pick, which is the way that they would like it. But I think the way that Seattle's viewing it is they create the cap space of 17 million by trading Clark. They draft Collier. They sign Ansa, and they're thinking that Ansa and Collier can combine to help try to replace the production that they lost from losing Frank Clark.
2: Let's stay in the NFC West, Adam, but move from the defensive side of the ball to the offensive side of the ball. Hey, what's up, Adam? It's Alejandro calling from Modesto, California. I wanted to ask you Do you
0: believe the 49ers are going to keep Derek uh, McKinnon, Tavon Coleman, and Matt Breda, or do you think they're going to cut one of them or trade them away during the preseason? Thank you. Well, thanks for the call, Alejandro. And I would just say this, that, look, you know yourself how many injuries the 49ers had last year at the backfield position It got down toward the end of the year where. Jeffrey Wilson, Raheem Mostert, those are the guys that are carrying the football and carrying the load for San Francisco. Let me say this to you. They love Tevin Coleman. They love Jarek McKinnon. They love Matt Breida. They're not cutting any of those guys right now. That's not happening. Don't see that happening this year at all. And they've gotten trade offers on Tevin Coleman. The Philadelphia Eagles called right after the draft or right after they signed Tevin Coleman in free agency to see if they would be willing to move on from him at that point in time. And the 49ers weren't. And they still, at that point in time, knew that they had McKinnon coming back from an injury. And at this time last year, they were as excited about McKinnon as you possibly could be about a player and what he could do for their offense. And I still think McKinnon will have a big role in San Francisco's offense. Look, you, you could put McKinnon and Coleman on the field at one time. Let's keep in mind, these are three backs. I know we hear that coaches and organizations really like, I'm telling you, okay, they loved McKinnon last year. They love Coleman this year. Their love for McKinnon is not any less. He's just coming up the injury. And Breed has always had a great spot and standing within that organization. So those are the three backs I think that you're really going to see them lean on this year. And I think there's a role and a spot for all of them. And with the injuries they've had, there's no reason not to keep all three.
2: So you don't see any transactions there. Nope. But what about for a big-name tight end in Minnesota? Hi, this is Matt from northern Louisiana. I just have a question. Is there a possibility that Kyle Rudolph could possibly go to the New Orleans Saints in a trade? And if so, what would New Orleans have to do in acquiring Kyle Rudolph
0: Thanks. Well, Matt, what I would say to you is this. First of all, the Saints went out and addressed their tight end need in Jared Cook. And they paid decent money to him. So it's hard for me to see them sinking money into another tight end. Now, do I think that the Vikings are open to moving on from Rudolph? I do. Again, it's not something they want to do. I think they value the player. But he's due to make this year, I think, about $7 million, if my memory serves me correctly. And they are strapped for cap space there in Minnesota. I know there's a team in the Northeast that lost a tight end to retirement. I'm sure that would probably be a natural fit for a guy like Kyle Rudolph. And we'll see whether the New England Patriots decide to make a run at Kyle Rudolph, make some calls, and see how that shakes out. That would be a logical fit. I think the real question is, if you're the Vikings, do you want to part ways with a really good tight end, even though you took Irv Smith in the second round with the 50th overall selection? Or do you think that your team's competitive enough, you can carry a salary for one year? But I I don't see the Saints as a solution for Kyle Rudolph, particularly when the Saints would be strengthening a conference rival. Like, no, don't see it.
2: You alluded to the Patriots perhaps being a destination for Rudolph. Does the
0: Benjamin Watson signing impact that one way or the other? No, it does not. I think the Patriots have made their moves to tight end. They've added Watson. They've added Matt um, They've added Austin Safarian Jenkins. Look, when you lose a Hall of Fame tight end like Rob Gronkowski, you're not going to replace him. So they they are just trying to sign whatever talented tight end is available. And I think Rudolph would be the most talented tight end that they could acquire if they could somehow figure out a way to land him. Great answers to
2: great questions. As the off season continues, we're going to need more questions for more Ask Adam segments. So make sure you call us, 860-506-5779. And in order to get credit for your questions, you got to leave your name. So call that number, leave your name, leave a question. And as always, the best ones will make the show.
0: So thanks to everybody who called in with this week's Ask Adam questions. Thank you to my friend and colleague at ESPN, Dan Orlovsky, who took us on a great trip down memory lane of all his NFL stops and the infamous play that will always be associated with his NFL career. Please join us again next week when we'll be back with another episode of the Adam Schefter podcast. Thanks for listening this week, everybody.